Today's text, which was just read, is Esther 2:19 through 3:15. And the title of this sermon is Mordecai's Stand. So to give you some context, um, here's what's happened so far in the book of Esther to catch us up to where we are today. Uh, We've learned so far that there's a king named Ahasuerus who loves him some Ahasuerus. He's all about himself. He throws a massive 187-day party to let everyone in the whole kingdom know that he's the man. Well, at the end of that party, he's drunk and commands his wife Vashti to come and parade herself in front of he and his drunk buddies. She refuses. His advisors convince him to have his wife banished and to find another queen. He's a buffoon, so he listens. He goes away to war with Greece, gets his tail whipped, and comes home. Four years later, he's remorseful, but not repentant about his wife. He receives some more bad advice from his young men who tell him to round up all of the young, beautiful virgins of the kingdom for his pleasure. He's a buffoon, so he listens. One of these beautiful young virgins is named Esther. She's an orphan girl who was adopted by her cousin Mordecai. They're Jews living in a pagan and dark land. Well, sure enough, Esther wins the king's grotesque competition and is selected to be his wife, the new queen. And that leads us to today's text. Have you ever heard the phrase, no good deed goes unpunished? You know, you do something good and then instead of being rewarded, you get run over. Have any of you experienced something like that? In those moments, you might be tempted to think, where's the justice in that? Isn't God paying attention? Well, in some ways, that's what we see in today's text. And since we've already read the text, let's dive right in. Let's begin in chapter 2, verse 19. We learn both in verse 19 and then again in verse 21 that Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now, when we read these words, it can be easy for us to think that that's just where Mordecai was hanging out in his free time. But that's not the case. Uh, The gate of the city was where all of the city's business took place. We see this kind of thing in the book of Ruth where land deals and even certificates of marriage are being done. So, when you read sitting at the king's gate, think clocking in at city hall. Mordecai is a civil servant working for the king day in and day out. And look at what happens in verse 21. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Now, it's important to know that when it came to gender, King Ahasuerus was an equal opportunity offender. It wasn't just women who were enslaved, like we learned last week. This guy named Herodotus, who's an ancient historian, he tells us that each year, 
the king also rounded up 500 young boys to be castrated and to serve as eunuchs in his palace. Karen Jobes rightly notes that everyone, whether male or female, was at the disposal of the king's personal whims. So, two of these eunuchs have apparently had enough, and they're close enough to the king to kill him. So they start planning. Then there's this little gem in verse 22. It says, And this, meaning the assassination plot, and this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. The way the author tells the story here is amazing. This came to the knowledge of Mordecai. It just happened. Remember, God isn't mentioned in this entire book. Yet, these coincidences piled on top of each other over and over and over and over again are meant to show us that God is alive and well. He's working in these tiny, seemingly insignificant moments there at City Hall. It's providential that Mordecai hears about this assassination attempt. By the way, while this one in the text doesn't turn out, it doesn't succeed, another one will in 465 BC. Uh, Extra-biblical sources tell us that Ahasuerus was in fact assassinated in his bedroom, probably by another eunuch. But this time, Mordecai just happens to come to the knowledge of the plot. So what does he do? He tells Esther. After all, who else could he trust? Esther then tells the king. But important to the story, she tells him in the name of Mordecai. The Crime Stoppers tip is investigated. It's a solid lead. And the perpetrators are arrested and hanged on the gallows. The actual translation says that they're impaled on pikes of wood. The king's life is saved. Christopher Ashe says, And so, in a lovely irony, this omnipotent emperor owes his life to a weak Jewish exile who becomes, in a way, his savior. Okay. I'm sure at this point, many of you are asking the question, Why would Mordecai do this? I mean, you're an insignificant Jew whose ways are completely different from this powerful pagan king, a king who, by the way, just abducted your adopted daughter to violate her. Would any of us fault Mordecai for just hearing about the assassination plot and simply saying nothing, just letting it happen? I mean... Think about the theologian and pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you don't know his story, it's crazy. He was a German pastor and theologian who had the opportunity to escape Nazi Germany and stay in the comfort of America. But instead, he goes back to Germany to pastor people through the chaos. Well, even though Bonhoeffer was a pacifist and argued forcefully for that position, he actively participated in an assassination plot on Hitler. Was he right or wrong? 
That's not the topic of our text today. <laughs> but here, Mordecai isn't part of an assassination plot. He doesn't just passively let the plot happen. No, he does the exact opposite and saves the evil king's life. What's up with that? Well, first, and most foundationally, every human being is created in the image of God. Evil king though he may be, he's still an image bearer. And we should never take that lightly. Second, and I know Mordecai wouldn't have had this scripture at his disposal, but we do. Look what Romans 12, verses 14 through 21 says. It says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Seems pretty clear, doesn't it? Yet, it's so hard to do. It's actually supernatural. And that's why it's so distinct when Christians actually do it. We won't ever, ever, ever do this kind of thing on our own. But with God's help and the empowerment of the Spirit, we can overcome evil with good. This is what the gospel does in the lives of Christians. It transforms us into people who don't treat our enemies the way they deserve to be treated. But instead... Treating them like Christ treats us, with grace and mercy. So, Mordecai providentially saves the king's life. Now, if, if you were reading this book for the first time and you didn't know the rest of the story, what would you expect to happen to Mordecai here? That he'd be rewarded in some way, right? Uh, especially if you knew that the Persians were known for rewarding loyalty both swiftly and generously. You, you do something good for a Persian king, you get rewarded. That's why this story is so shocking initially. What happens? Verse 21. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. No fanfare, no promotion, they just recorded it. And as one author stated it, there it gathers dust, and yet it ticks away like a time bomb waiting for its moment to explode. Have you ever experienced something like this? You do a good deed, and it goes completely unnoticed and unthanked. In fact, how many of you have been thanked lately for being a Christian? Probably not many, if any of us. And that's what we should expect, living in a dark and broken world. But God has a plan. 
And hear this. He rewards according to his timing. While the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't an I do good deeds so that Jesus will reward me by saving me, that's not the gospel. But we are called to good works as a response to the gospel. And look at what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 12, or Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. He says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. God does reward us, but it's in his timing for his purposes. It's no different here in the book of Esther. Christian, do the right thing, knowing that God sees you. But in Esther, the story actually gets worse, doesn't it? Not only did Mordecai not get rewarded or a promotion, but look at what happens next. Chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. For the trouble of saving the king's life, Mordecai gets passed up for a promotion by this guy. And we're about to find out just how bad this situation is. Haman is promoted and set up as the second in command, only below the king himself. Let's keep reading, verses 2 through 6. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So... As they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Wow. So much going on there. First, why doesn't Haman bow to this this Haman guy? Is it because Mordecai is in sin and not submitting to the authorities like he's supposed to? Some think so. Is it because he's finally taking a stand and refusing to bow the knee to an oppressive government? Some think so. But I believe it's neither. I believe the text tells us exactly why Mordecai does what he does. Remember, last week, chapter 2, verse 5, we learned that Mordecai was a descendant of Kish, meaning that he's related to King Saul, Israel's first king. Now, here, we find out that this guy, Haman, is called the Agagite. What does that mean? Glad you asked. Do you remember the famous battle in Exodus where Moses has his arms held up by Aaron and Hur? Exodus 17, 8 through 16. In that battle, The people of God are fighting against these people called the Amalekites. 
who ruthlessly attacked them as they were coming out of Egypt. Now, in Deuteronomy, God says this to his people. Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19. God says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. The Amalekites have always been a thorn in the flesh of God's people. Fast forward to 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15. Let's take a quick tour. 1 Samuel 15, verses 1 through 3. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That was God's command to King Saul. What did he do? Verses 7 through 9. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. In other words, he didn't do what God commanded him to do. Later, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, it's an Amalekite who actually kills King Saul. And did you catch the name of the king of the Amalekites? Agag! Ring a bell? Haman, Agagite. Haman is a descendant of Agag. Mordecai is a descendant of Saul. Do you see it? This is an extension of Genesis 3.15. From Genesis to Exodus, from Exodus to Deuteronomy, from Deuteronomy to 1 Samuel, and from 1 Samuel to Esther, and everything in between. Genesis 3.15, God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words... There's going to be enmity between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of Eve. They're going to be at war. Ultimately, this verse will be fulfilled by Jesus Christ as the seed, but it will always be true of God's people as well. God's people will always be at war with the offspring of Satan. The Amalekites were an extension of that. They were the hardened enemies of God's people throughout the ages. As one of God's people, you will always experience persecution in some form or fashion 
from the seed of Satan. We learn in Ephesians chapter 6 that we're in a cosmic spiritual war. But listen to the words of Jesus himself. John 15, verses 18 through 20. John 15, 18 through 20. Jesus says this. He says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The battle that was started in Genesis is still alive and well, even though Jesus has won the war. Expect to be hated and even persecuted as a part of God's people. So, back to Esther. When we hear that Haman is an Agagite, and that Mordecai is a descendant of Saul, we should be thinking, oh man, there's about to be a conflict. And there is. But it's here that I think the author wants us to again compare and contrast these characters with the book of Daniel. To paraphrase Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sets up a golden idol that's to be bowed down to and worshipped. This is black and white. Daniel and his three friends have no choice but to obey God and disobey the king. But here, in Esther, it's a bit different. The command to bow and pay homage to Haman isn't an act of worship, but one of honor and respect. It's like bowing in Japanese culture or saluting in military culture. Mordecai doesn't have an issue with bowing, even to King Ahasuerus. But bowing to Haman? That's more than he can stomach. In fact, Esther has no problem bowing to King Ahasuerus. In chapter 8 of this book, she does exactly that. The bowing isn't the issue. It's the enmity. Now, the point that I'm wanting us to see here is that this is kind of a weird place to take a stand if you're Mordecai. If Mordecai wanted to take a stand, he probably should have done it when they came to abduct Esther, right? This seems like taking a stand on potentially a secondary issue. One commentator points out that Mordecai has strained out a gnat and swallowed a camel, using the words of Jesus from Matthew 23. It's not that I or Jesus are advocating for swallowing the gnats, but so often we make valiant stands on secondary issues while not standing up for the big ones. Any of you see yourself in Mordecai? Is this a hill worth dying on? That's probably a question that Mordecai should have asked himself, but he doesn't, so he stood. And after it was brought to Haman's attention, his pride's wounded, and he's furious. But getting back at Mordecai alone wasn't good enough. Haman decides to kill all of God's people 
for the transgression of one man. Well, what day is a good day for genocide? Verse 7. They roll the dice to try to divine when they should do it. But what Haman doesn't know is that God is in control and he's sovereign even over this. Look at this. Proverbs 16, verse 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. They're, they're rolling the dice in the month of Nisan, which is the first month. The dice just happened to land on the month of Adar, which is the 12th month. The genocide won't happen for a, a full 12 months, a full year. Isn't that an amazing coincidence? Or God is actually in control of it. So, a date is set, but now Haman has to convince the king. Haman, by himself, doesn't have the authority to just murder hundreds of thousands of innocent people. But look what he does. This is crafty and wicked. He, he gets together with the king. He tells a truth, a half-truth, and then a flat-out lie. This is how you manipulate someone. First, he says, there is a certain people. Notice he doesn't even name them because it's easier to hate people when it's vague and not specific. There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. That's true. The Jews were a scattered people dispersed all around the Persian Empire. But he makes it sound sinister, doesn't he? So he tells the truth. Then he tells a half-truth. He says, their laws are different from those of every other people. The Jews did have different laws, but not in the horrible connotation that Haman gives. The Jews were separate in many ways. But then again, they also weren't. I mean, one of the Jews, Mordecai himself, worked in service of the king. And then one of them, Esther, was the king's wife. Then Haman goes full bore into the lies. He's told a truth, a half-truth, and now full bore lies. He says, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. This couldn't be further from the truth. We've actually seen Mordecai and Esther obey the king's laws to their own detriment so far, haven't we? Mordecai, as we already saw, even saved the king's life. Then, to top it off, Haman does what all wicked political actors do. He offers the king a bribe. Look at verse 9. He says, If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. Wow. Just to, to kind of put this into perspective, 10,000 talents of silver 
was about 60% of the Persian Empire's yearly tax revenue. In 2021, the U.S. yearly tax revenue was $4 trillion. So it would be the equivalent of offering $2.4 trillion to the federal government to carry out a genocide. What will the king do? Verses 10 and 11. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Unreal. The king, who should have been in charge, passively stood aside and let this happen. He didn't care enough to find out what was really going on. He cared more about his pocketbook than his people. Now, I want to stop and try to make a connection for you. What we see here in the text is a government-sponsored killing of innocent image bearers. If that breaks your heart, it should. Every human being is created in the image of God and therefore equal in value, being, and worth. To kill an image bearer unjustly is an offense to God. As I think about parallels and connections to today's world, I can't help but see abortion as being very similar. A government-sponsored killing of innocent image bearers. Let's pause and hear these stinging words from Ian DeGuid. He says, It is easy to condemn Ahasuerus, but perhaps we should be careful that we don't condemn ourselves in the process. In a democratic political system, we the people are the ones who possess the signet ring. When we vote, we assign that power to others to exercise for us. How often do we take seriously our responsibility to examine carefully the arguments presented to us by the different political parties? We too may be guilty of being easily deceived by flimsy logic because we are too lazy to engage in serious thought. We may simply vote our pocketbook, supporting whichever party seems more likely to benefit us personally. Some may not even vote simply standing by while others assign the power for which we are accountable. We often fail actively to petition those who represent us, making sure that they know our views and the reasons that support them. Insofar as this is true, we can hardly be surprised or shocked if our government passes laws that are repressive towards religion or genocidal toward the unborn. We gave the politicians the signet ring and went off to celebrate while others paid the price. Ouch and amen. Proverbs 24, verses 10 through 12 says, If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, Behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? 
Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Church, do you see the obvious parallels? We, we read this story in Esther, and we rightly think, that's horrible. That a government-sponsored extermination was going on, and the king was just passive. According to the website Worldometer, as of this morning, there have been 33 million abortions this year alone worldwide. 64 million abortions in the United States since 1973. Children created in the image of God, murdered in the womb. All while Planned Parenthood's silver talents fill the pockets of our politicians. We have a Jewish synagogue down the road with signs that claim reproductive freedom is a Jewish value. We have a governor who has placed billboards in other states, inviting women to California to have abortions, all the while using the words of Jesus on the same billboards, championing the killing of innocent image bearers while tagging God's name to it. That's blasphemous. Remember, righteous anger, righteous anger, is being angry not about personal offenses, but being angry about God being offended. Friends, this is an offense to God. We should be angry. We should be brokenhearted. And we shouldn't give our signet rings away with no thought or care for what our government does with them. Human beings are being destroyed, killed, and annihilated, to use the words of our text. This is evil. It's a work of Satan himself. Don't be a Hasuerus, sitting passively by, uninformed while giving authority for image bearers to be slaughtered. Now, what if you're here in the room and you've had an abortion? Hear this. That was an offense to God. And I want you to hear the truth also of last week's sermon. Both Mordecai and Esther, they compromised big time. And yet, God remained faithful to his promises. He still used them greatly. He was faithful even when they weren't. If you've had an abortion, repent. Acknowledge that it was an offense to God and rest in the forgiveness that only Christ can give. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ can take away guilt and shame this very minute because he atoned for sin on the cross. You don't have to keep trying to atone for your own sins. Christ did that for you. You can be forgiven. You can start new. You can be used by God, like Mordecai and like Esther. Then we read in our final verse, verse 15. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king. 
and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. The evil empire sat comfortable and confident. The people of God were confused, but God was still in control. How can I say that? God's people had just been handed a death sentence on the night before Passover, by the way. How can I say God's in control? He isn't shaken or phased by the world's scheming. Again, remember Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He has a clear plan in place that they don't even know about. Remember, God has already put Esther in place. He's already seen to it that Mordecai's good deed was recorded in the king's book. His sovereign hand is working, even when it seems like the seed of Satan is winning. So when the Jews were sitting there the night before Passover in Susa, with a death warrant over their heads, they were probably wondering, will God rescue us again like he did so long ago in Egypt? Is he going to do that again? The answer is yes, even though they didn't know how yet. He hasn't given up on his promises or his people. And maybe you're sitting here today asking the same question. Gee, it seems like the seed of Satan and the descendants of Agag are soundly in control of the people of God. Does God even care? Are his promises still valid? Will he rescue us again? The answer is yes. Sometimes we have to look backwards to see God's faithfulness through the ages, to know that he will be faithful in the future. God has never broken any of his promises. There are no falling words in this book. And here's what I want us to see in this chapter of Esther. God is sovereign and faithful in moments of plenty and in moments of peril. Have you ever heard someone say, that's such a God thing? I've even said it before. When do we tend to say that? When something works out or something good happens. But here's the truth. It's all a God thing. Even in moments of peril, God is sovereignly in control. Here in the book of Esther, in the midst of this evil plot to destroy God's people, he's in control. It's such a God thing. As Christians, we can have hope even in the midst of suffering because we know that it's all purposeful and significant. We know that God is doing something even when we can't see it. We know that he wins in the end. Even when doing battle with the seed of Satan, we know that the gates of hell won't prevail against Christ's church. Here's the deal. 
while Ahasuerus, while Ahasuerus was completely unjustified in condemning the Jews to death. Think about this. God would be completely justified in condemning us to death. Every single one of us, myself included. None of us have kept God's law because of our sin against the holy creator of the universe. We all deserve death as the just penalty for our sin. To use the words of our text again, it's not to God's profit to tolerate us. But here's the amazing truth. Instead of signing our death warrant, God sent his own son to die in our place. He was also sold for pieces of silver, by the way. He went to the cross and took the penalty that we owe died as our substitute, was buried, and rose from the grave three days later for our justification. He made us righteous in God's sight. If we're ever tempted to wonder if God cares for us in the midst of persecution or peril, need we look any farther? On the cross, Jesus fulfilled Genesis 3.15, crushing the head of Satan in the exact spot that it looked like Satan was winning the most. Isn't that amazing? Jesus says this, John 16, 33. He says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood, of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord of hosts his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours, through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let's pray.